Chapter Twenty One of Northwest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Northwest by Harold Bindloss. Chapter Twenty One. Deering's Excursion. Rain beat the bark roof and heavy drops splashed on the floor. Sometimes a gust of wind swept the window opening and smoke blew about but on the whole the shack was dry and warm. Jimmy thought they had made a good job, and sitting by the fire he tranquilly smoked his pipe. The Indian, opposite him, plated a snare. Deering studied a card problem in an old newspaper. "'The game's pretty good, but I soon got on to it,' he said. "'When you locate the bower, come across and I'll show you.' no thanks said jimmy smiling to know where the bower is is useful but sometimes you don't know and a ten spot knocks you out things are like that anyhow i've not much use for cards you were keen i reckon your keenness cost you something jimmy nodded that is so but i really think i wanted to satisfy my curiosity I wanted the thrills others seemed to get, and I experimented with cards and two or three expensive sports. Now I feel I'd sooner build a shack than win a pot of money on a first-class race. The strange thing is, when I was at the cotton mill and Dick wanted me to study the machinery, I was bored. I expect he tried to force you, Deering remarked. When one is young, one doesn't study the things others think one ought. He frowned and jerked his head. Another blamed big drop on the back of my neck. When the rain stops, I'll mend the roof, said Jimmy. The shack's a pretty good shack, and two or three slabs of bark will cure the leak. Then I must get some green clay and flat stones for the chimney. You talk as if you meant to remain in the rocks. It looks as if I might have to stay for some time. Deering shook his head. In a proper cold snap you want double windows, but we have got a hole. Then I've not much use for a blanket door. When the frost begins we have got to quit. But where can we go? I don't know yet. I have thought about your ranch. Jardine stated the police had searched it, and I reckon they won't come back. However, we'll talk about this again. I think Miss Jardine gave you a needle and thread? Jimmy said Margaret had done so, and inquired why Deering wanted the thread. We can't get out, and I guess I'll sew my clothes for you. In the morning I'm going to use Jardine's. "'But why—' Jimmy began. Deering indicated his torn shooting jacket, ragged knickerbockers, and soil-stained puttees. "'I must start for Vancouver to look up a fellow who has got some money of mine. Then I want to find out if the police have cured Douglas and what they are doing. If I wore my clothes, people would speculate about the dead-broke sporting guy.' Jardine's clothes are not very good. I've worn them for some time in the bush. Then I expect you'll find them tight. 
There are ranchers' clothes, and I don't mind looking like a bushman. In fact, until I make Vancouver, the part will go all right. Jimmy knitted his brows. Perhaps he had thought too much for himself, but he owned he did not want Deering to leave him. "'Well,' he said, "'I mustn't grumble. But will you be long?' "'When I've fixed my business and found out something useful, I'll come right back,' Deering replied, and threading the needle began to sew. "'I was raised in the bush, and the small homesteaders are a pretty frugal lot. They don't throw away their old clothes.' "'When you reach the settlements, won't you run some risk?' Jimmy inquired. "'I expect the risk will not be altogether mine. So far as I know, the police are not looking for me. The trouble is, I might put them on your track. But so long as I'm steering for the coast, this needn't bother us. I don't want them to hit my trail when I'm coming back. Well, I'm pretty big to hide.' But if they are after me, they'll watch out for a city sport, not a bushman. In the morning, Deering started, and after a strenuous journey reached a small station some distance from the hotel. He did not buy his ticket from the agent. The conductor would supply him, and when the long train rolled in, he got aboard. The porter was making up the second-class berths, and when Deering got his, he went to bed. So far, his luck was good, but after he had slept for five or six hours, he began to doubt. A savage jolt threw him against the curtain, and the thin material tore from the rings. Deering went through, but came down like a cat on the floor. The brakes jarred, and startled passengers ran about. For the most part, they did not wear their proper clothes, but when Deering went to bed, he wore all his, and he pushed through a group that blocked the vestibule. The train stopped, and from the platform, he saw a leaping pillar of flame and reflections on rocks and trees. The white beam from the locomotive headlamp melted in the strong illumination, and moving figures cut the dark background. The picture was distinct and vivid like a scene from a film until a cloud of steam rolled across the light and all was blurred. Deering heard hammers and the clang of rails. A construction gang was obviously at work and he imagined a trestle had broken or perhaps another train had jumped the track. When he waited at the station he had not tried to hide himself. To do so was risky since he imagined the police had warned the agent to study the passengers. If the agent had remarked him, the delay would be awkward, and he wondered whether the telegraph wires were broken. Jumping down, he went along the track and stopped in the strong light a blast lamp threw across a gap. The roadbed was gone, and a great bank of stones and snow rested on the hillside. Bent rails slanted into the hole, and a broken telegraph pole hung by the tangled wires. Shovels rattled, and a gang of men threw down soil and stones. Deering stopped one. "'How long is it since the landslide cut the track?' "'About two hours since we got the call,' 
Then they rushed you up pretty quick. I expect you got the call by wire? The other indicated the broken post. Wires went when the track went. The section man came for us on a trolley. We're grading for a new bridge a few miles down the line. Are you going to be long filling her up? Three or four hours, I reckon. The boys are loading up the gravel train. But if the boss spots me talking, I'll get fired. Deering pondered. If the agent had been warned to look out for him, the fellow had had time to telegraph before the wires broke, and the police could arrange to watch the stations or put a trooper on board the train. Deering did not think they had a warrant for his arrest, but they would try to use him in order to get on Jimmy's track. There was not much use in leaving the train, because he would be spotted when he boarded another. He resolved to go back to his berth, and soon after he did so, he went to sleep. In the morning, the train started. Deering got a good breakfast at a meal station, and afterwards occupied a corner of a smoking compartment. Sleep and food had refreshed him, and his mood was cheerful. He admitted he was perhaps ridiculous, but he had begun to enjoy his excursion. Deering was marked by a vein of rather boyish humor, and to cheat the police amused him. By and by, he speculated about his object for going after Jimmy when the warden was shot. Jimmy had plunged into the gully sooner than let him go, but perhaps this did not account for all. Stannard had urged Jimmy to push for the plains, although Stannard ought to know the lad could not cross the mountains. Then he had indicated a line over the neck, and Deering had stopped Jimmy at the top of a pitch that dropped to a horrible crevasse. The thing was strange and sinister, but Jimmy trusted Stannard. Deering did not. He was intrigued and felt he ought to see Jimmy out. After a time, a police trooper came from the vestibule and stopped for a moment at the door of the smoking compartment. His glance rested carelessly on Deering, and then he went through into the car. At the next station, the policeman got down and went to the office. When the train started, Deering did not see him get on board, but people moved about and the end cars were behind the water tank. In the afternoon, when he leaned back, half asleep in his corner, the trooper came in again. Deering did not move, but his eyes were not altogether shut, and he saw the fellow's glance was keen and fixed. In a moment or two, the trooper turned his head, and going into the vestibule, did not shut the door quietly. Deering's curiosity was satisfied. The police knew he was on board. Lighting his pipe, he looked out of the window. The train was speeding down the lower Fraser Valley. Orchards, fields with white snake fences, and wooden homesteads rolled by. The sun was near the hilltops, and the shadows of the pines were long. When they reached Vancouver, it would be dark, and the troopers' duties would be undertaken by the municipal police. The Royal Northwest had nothing to do with the British Columbian cities. Their business was in the wilds. 
Deering pulled out his watch. A short distance from Vancouver, they would stop at a junction where a line for Washington State branched off, but his business was not in Washington. Fast steamers sailed from Vancouver for the ports of Puget Sound, and since the police would expect him to go on board, he thought he saw a plan. Some time after dark, he went to the platform in front of the car. A half-moon shone between slow-moving clouds, and he saw vague hills and sparkling water. Then the lights of anchored steamers began to twinkle, and sawmill chimney stacks cut the sky. Lights in rows and clusters marked the front of a low hill, the cars rolled along the water side, and presently stacks of lumber blocked the view. Then the whistle screamed, the brakes jarred, and the passengers began to push out from the vestibule. Deering jumped down and looked about. Freight cars occupied the tracks, and the dazzling beam from a locomotive's headlamp touched piles of goods and hurrying people. Round the tall electric standards were pools of light, but smoke and steam blew about the wharf, and where the strong illumination was cut off, all was dark. Bells tolled, wheels rattled, and the clang of the steamer's winches pierced the din. Her double row of passenger decks towered above the wharf, and Deering joined the crowd at the slanted gangway. He was willing for the city police to see him board the steamer. At the top of the gangway, a steward indicated the way to the second-class deck, but Deering pushed by and went to the saloon. Since he was playing a bush rancher's part, the police would expect him to travel second class, and he must for a few minutes put them off his track. As soon as the luggage was on board, the boat would start. For the most part, the people were on deck, and the spacious saloon was quiet. Deering thought he did not look like a first-class passenger. His hair was long, his hat was battered and Jardine's rather ragged clothes were tight on his big body. Searching the room with a keen glance, he stopped, for a group of three people occupied a seat at the other end. He wondered whether he ought to steal off, but Dillon jumped up. "'Why, it's Deering!' he exclaimed. Laura started, and her companion turned. Deering imagined the lady was Mrs. Dillon, and he crossed the floor. Dillon's surprise was obvious, but he gave Deering his hand. "'We have been bothered about you for some time, and it looks as if you had got up against it. But where's Jimmy?' "'Jimmy's at the shack we built on the rocks. What about the warden?' "'We can get no news. I imagine the police are hiding the fellow.' "'Why did you leave Jimmy?' Laura interrupted, and Deering saw she did not altogether trust him. "'Has he food and proper clothes? If he is in trouble, we must try to help.' "'That is so,' said Dillon. "'If Jimmy wants me, I'll get off the boat.' "'Jimmy's clothes are worse than mine, but he doesn't particularly want your help. I pulled out because I must transact some business.' and I've pretty good grounds to imagine the police are on my track. 
"'I expect we'll sail in a few minutes,' said Dillon. "'Do you think the police know you got on board?' Deering glanced at the others. He thought Laura imagined he had meant to join them, and she was not yet satisfied. Mrs. Dillon was frankly annoyed. "'So long as they don't know I got off again, it's not important,' he replied. "'Are you going to get off?' "'Certainly,' said Deering, and turned to Laura with a twinkle. "'The trick is not remarkably fresh, but since the police reckon I'm bound for the United States, it ought to work. You see, Jimmy's my friend, and when I've put across my business, I'm going back. Laura gave him her hand. I didn't know. I wish you luck. When you think we can help, you must send us a letter. The whistle blew, a bell rang, and people began to enter the saloon. Thank you, Miss Stannard, said Deering, and crossed the floor. He went along an alley and through the second-class saloon to the deck in front. The steamer's bows were in the gloom, and a number of wharf-hands hurried down a plank. Deering joined the row and followed the men to a cargo shed. The shed was dark, but the sliding doors on the other side were open, and he crawled under a freight car and crossed the track. A minute or two afterwards he stopped. So far as he could see, nobody but a few train hands were about. The steamer had swung away from the wharf and was steering for the Narrows. Deering laughed and went up the hill behind the waterfront. End of chapter 21 Recording by Roger Moline